from Green Biz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower. This week in New York City, on this week's edition, why carbon pricing is the new normal, more companies find value in the circular economy, partnering for green growth, and a visit with one of the most inspiring educators you'll ever meet. It's a teachable moment this week on 350. It's October 20th, 2017. Welcome to this week's episode of Green Biz 350. I'm Joel McCower, and joining me across the room, oh my God, look, it's Heather Clancy. Hi, Heather. Oh my God, Joel, you're in New York City. How wonderful to see you. It's always so great to be here. I, I just don't get enough time in New York. I've had this uh, like three days of, of just great, great meetings and some pretty good food too. And lovely autumn weather. So why are you here, Joel? other than to see me. Well, there's that. Um, I mean, the main reason, that the thing that brought me here besides United Airlines is uh, I spoke at the, um, it was the opening keynote for the uh, annual, fifth annual sustainability summit for Berkshire Hathaway. So tell me about Berkshire Hathaway. What, what division of it? Well, you know, Berkshire Hathaway, that's the uh, Warren Buffett company that, uh, or umbrella uh, conglomerate of, of companies. And they, uh, about 40 or 50 or 60 of them have sustainability programs. And this was a gathering of all the Berkshire Hathaway sustainability directors. So there was Shaw Carpets and BNSF Railroad and Fruit of the Loom and Lubrizol and Geico. And uh, uh, it was hosted uh, in not too far from where you live in Montvale, New Jersey, at the headquarters of Benjamin Moore. Um, and so it was really, really fun to meet and talk with them and in fact, we can play in a minute uh, just a little conversation I had there with a couple leaders from Benjamin Moore. But yeah, it's really, uh, you know, it's one of the things I do uh, is sort of go and give a sort of big framing speech about what's going on out there and how what's taking place here is part of a much bigger movement, if you will, but also some of the things that are both um, sobering and really exciting about this space. So I have to ask, it's such a diverse company. Do they handle their sustainability strategy as one Uber strategy, or does each division have their own uh, team? No, it's just like the companies run in general, uh, where every every company has their own thing, and some are doing really uh, well. Uh, Shaw Carpet's a great example of a company that's been doing cradle to cradle and and uh, designing some new business models around making getting car- carpeting and flooring back. And others are just really heading down this path. Uh, some, uh, the railroad, BNSF, a lot more compliance, uh, but also looking at sustainability in the communities through which it passes, um, cities, uh, rural areas, uh, uh, native tribes. And, and so they all have, they're all very different. As you can imagine, Lubrizol, a, a chemical, basically, chemical and oil company, is from Fruit of the Loom. Right. So you're uh, on the road again next week, I think. Where are you heading off to next? Next week is the 25th BSR conference, sort of a milestone event uh, for the organization. And then a little bit for me, because I am actually the only person who's been to all 20 or will have been to all 25 oh, BSR conferences. You should get a prize. Well, I'm getting a few minutes on stage, uh, uh, to, you know, like 
just to talk about something. And uh, so I'll do that. And there'll be, you know, a lot of our listeners will be there. A lot of uh, our members of our Green Biz Executive Network will be there. And um, I, I always enjoy that crowd. How about you? What are you doing in the city today? So I am having an interview with Helen Clarkson of the Climate Group. I'm working on an, our, my next, one of my next big green profiles of a great organization that collaborates with business to get the job done, if you will, to get the climate change mission accomplished. I'm looking forward to that conversation. And um, had another conversation also with Nicole Rycroft from the Canopy organization. On uh, They work a lot on deforestation, on protecting ancient forests. So... Some fun, uh, some fun profiles coming up, including one on uh, Rocky Mountain Institute that I'm working on with you, Joel. So we've got a lot of writing to do in the next few days. I know, uh, and we'll hopefully find time to do that amidst the travels. So before we move on to the Week in Review, let me just play a little uh, a interview I did uh, at, at Berkshire Hathaway with uh, Benjamin Moore. I, I spoke to Reva Keimer, who's the Director of Environmental Health and Safety uh, for Compliance and Sustainability. In effect, Benjamin Moore's uh, senior most uh, sustainability leader, been in the job for six months. So she's kind of a newbie and she's just, you know, she's been at the company longer, but this is a new function. And, I, and her boss, Barry Chadwick, who's Benjamin Moore's Executive Vice President for Operations. And I started out by asking Reva to explain this week's event. So we've gathered Berkshire companies from all over the country, brought them here today to uh, talk about sustainability and business value and to allow for an opportunity for the various organizations to share best practices, to leverage opportunities, and, and to learn. It seems like there's a pretty broad spectrum here in terms of where companies are around sustainability. Absolutely. There are folks, um, very wide range from those with very mature programs or approaches to those who are just starting off trying to evaluate and establish baselines and figure out what their approach will be going forward. And, And what do you hope will come out of this? What will change as a result of this event? Well, hopefully people will be able to take away uh, learnings, will be able to uh, implement some of the great things that are going on in various uh, companies, in their own companies, and also develop some partnerships. Berkshire's got a large, very diverse portfolio, and we've seen already today how we can um, leverage and benefit from what some of the other companies are doing, you know, and just grow our sustainability programs, benefit to all. So, Barry, let's talk a little bit about sustainability at Benjamin Moore. First of all, is it changing your perception and, and the actions that Benjamin Moore is taking? Yeah, I think the, the primary focus is, you know, part of the conversation we had earlier today, it's got to make good business sense. So if we look at the things that make business sense, saving energy, um, not throwing waste materials in the landfill, recycling uh, back into your processes, all that stuff makes fantastic business sense. And the challenge is inspiring our people every step along the way to be thinking in those terms. You know, how do I run the truck for less miles and still deliver the product? How do I reduce the amount of water I use for cleanup after I've made a batch of product? Down to the materials that we use when we formulate the products in the laboratory. You know, can I get the, the raw materials from a local source as opposed to sourcing them from overseas? So it's, it, it's that whole way of thinking. What's driving this? Is it primarily dollars and cents? I think it's twofold. I think it's got to make sense when you when you look at the dollars and the cents. But I think that as a good corporate citizen, it's something that we all aspire to do, and it's something that our employees feel good about doing. So if it makes good business sense and we can feel 
good about doing it and it's good for the long term. Why wouldn't we wouldn't we move forward? When I come back to Benjamin Moore in in two years for to visit, what's the story each of you hopes to be able to tell about sustainability at Benjamin Moore? I think that we are not as strongly metric driven on the sustainability side today as we are with all the other supply chain metrics that make a difference. Um, I want to have metrics in place, and I really want to move seriously towards a zero-waste footprint across our entire manufacturing base. Reva, let me ask you a slightly different. Which of those do you think you can take on first? I think we have to do a little bit of metrics is absolutely something that we need to do. In order to do that and do that right, we do have to take a step back in certain instances and establish our baselines. So I think that's definitely a place that we can start. We also need to engage across functions, right? Can't be a siloed activity. We have to get R&D, we have to get marketing, we have to get communications, we have to get operations all involved in the conversation. So we need to work on our internal communications and messaging. What gets measured gets managed and what gets shared by everybody gets ultimately bought into. So sounds like a great journey. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. So one more thing, I'm going to plug myself before we go to the Week in Review. Just started a new column uh, this week called Breakthroughs, um, looking at early stage technologies and scientific developments that can kickstart good climate change solutions. So watch for that and pitch me. Pitch me, all of you. And now, on to the Week in Review. Well, Heather, you uh, just told us you've got a new column, and it just ran this week called Breakthroughs, What's uh, Innovations Coming Out of Labs and Companies. What did you start off with? So I started off with sort of a controversial topic, uh, one that that we've been covering for a while and that millions has been spent trying to develop, uh, carbon capture technologies. This particular breakthrough is from a company in Switzerland called Climeworks, and what differentiates this from other sorts of solutions that are being worked on in this space is that it is a direct air capture. In other words, it sucks the uh, CO2 right out of the atmosphere. And so, uh, as opposed to what? I mean, aren't, aren't other CCS, carbon capture, and either storage or sequestration, aren't other technologies like that taking carbon out of the air, where else would it get get it from? So the other, I mean, yes, the answer is, is essentially yes. But this, this is a solution that can be placed near a power plant or near something else. It doesn't have to be attached to the flues. It doesn't have to have this um, infrastructure underneath like, like um, many other solutions have been. The, the problem with carbon capture and sequestration is that it, it's been a very infrastructure-intensive proposition in the past. This particular technology um, is, is no bigger. It's like seven feet tall. The, the, each module, each collector, they call them, is, is a pretty self-contained unit. Like if you think about like an HVAC unit. It's not small, but it's not as massive as these other um, propositions. And it doesn't require sort of the permanent investment that um, those others require. And this uses a chemical process to 
pull it out and then bind it to uh, ceramics and other materials within the, the equipment. And then the, the carbon dioxide can be used for anything. Could be used for beverages, right, you, in theory. Could be used uh, in, in one, they have two test plants. One, the first is using the, the CO2 as a fertilizer in a, in a greenhouse. This second one is um, sited at a geothermal plant in Iceland. And what they're testing there is how that CO2 can be basically injected into the ground, like like some of the other storage solutions that we're talking about, but it gets turned into basalt, right? It gets, hmm. they're, they're trying to basically make it part of the bedrock at this site. Oh, so there's a real sequestration, because uh, I'm impressed with what they're making out of carbon dioxide and, and methane mm-hmm. now, a lot of plastics. I even saw there's a, a food protein, a powdered protein that is coming out of the lab that holds great promise for both sequestering or, or uh, or taking CO two out of the out of the atmosphere and creating protein and for uh, at, at very low income and protein deprived uh, populations. So there's a lot going on there. Um, is this is this commercial? It is not commercial. Um, this is a test. There, these two plants are tests right now. Um, they, they they're more commercial than the other companies in this space. There are a couple of other companies. One in New York. One in uh, British Columbia. But they haven't reached this stage yet. So this this is a company to watch. Uh, and absolutely, your, your point taken very well uh, on, on what you use this stuff for. And I'm absolutely going to go after some of those technologies as well. What can you use this for? How can you take it out of the air? How can you make use? How can you turn it into profit? Yeah, and that's one of the part of what... what we- we've been talking about is the new conversation about carbon. Carbon is not bad. All these, you know, war on carbon, carbon war room, uh, you know, defeat carbon, kill carbon, you know, it's not the enemy. It's it's our friend. We are carbon. And the, the, the challenge is that uh, climate change is caused from carbon that's in the wrong place. And so repatriating it, bringing it back down to earth, and then turning it into uh, any number of, of kinds of things is really What's going on? Well, well, let's move from uh, from that form of carbon to uh, a couple of other stories that both have to do with climate and carbon. And uh, one is uh, they're both from our our friends at Business Green in the UK. Uh, Madeline Cuff wrote a piece called "Carbon Pricing is Becoming the Norm for Big Companies." Uh, and this is part of an annual report that CDP, formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, uh, puts out uh, that has been tracking the number of companies that are using some kind of internal carbon pricing to assess and control the carbon impact of their operations. And they say it's jumped eightfold, eightfold in just the last four years. More than 1,300 companies are now using some kind of internal carbon pricing or planning to introduce such a scheme in the next two years, including more than 100 of the Fortune 500 companies uh, with collective annual revenues of around $7 trillion. This is This is becoming the new normal. And did we mention this is voluntary, right? They're doing this voluntarily. It's that I think is is the really striking thing for me. They're choosing to do this. They're choosing to start accounting for this now, maybe because they are worried that that it will become necessary in the future. Um, maybe also because they're trying to, to figure out what their investment means, right? It's part of the, the, the natural capital um, accounting uh, movement, if you will, to, to really understand what that intangible, previously uh, invaluable and an unpriced asset really means. Um, the, the challenge, though, is that everyone does it a little bit differently, right? As a reporter, it's like, uh, what does this mean versus that? And, and, and that 
that will be the rubric, right, I think that we'll, we'll need to adjust and, and morph and become more standard over time. We'll need to understand how to be able to compare companies. And right now, it's really difficult to do that. And just to be clear, I mean, companies aren't just doing this in anticipation. I mean, it's partly in anticipation of carbon pricing and partly to, you know, uh, be a little bit on the good offense. But also, carbon emissions is a proxy for waste, wasted energy, wasted materials. Um, and so by using that in, in, in that way and putting a price on waste, in effect, they're better able to manage their operations and better able to show from department to department, operation to operation, business unit to business unit, what uh, what the prices are, what the where the waste is, where the opportunities for efficiency are. They can pit departments or business units or brands against one another, um, compare and contrast and reward in some cases, or at least acknowledge. So this is a, it's a, it's actually become a very handy tool for some companies and you know it, it it wasn't very many years ago that this was like exotic microsoft yeah, like My- three years ago and microsoft does exactly that yeah, what yeah. you're saying is is they use it to, to pit units against each other i think the other thing that um we absolutely need to watch and, and be aware of is that china is is planning this this uh largest emissions trading system for carbon right so it's also in anticipation of being able to um, participate in that system, and especially if anyone wants business in China, they got to get up, they got to get their uh, their ducks in a row, if you will. Yeah, and and the story about uh, the growth of internal carbon pricing really contrasts in other ways, in some ways, to the other story from uh, James Murray at Business Green um, that had headlined: three quarters of companies don't acknowledge their climate risks, and this is uh, out of a KPMG survey on corporate responsibility reporting showing that the vast majority of firms uh, haven't yet engaged with the best practice reporting of climate-related risks. This is the scheme that's coming out of the uh, Financial Financial Sustainability Board's TCFD, as it's called, the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure. So this is how uh, companies and investors and stakeholders will understand what are the climate risks. And this is not, again, just a reporting exercise. I mean, we're starting to see, and we'll be writing more about this, financial firms that are looking at this. Moody's is doing some test pilots on on, on how uh, climate risk affects credit scores. I mean, come on, that's kind of a game changer when, when your climate risks affect the cost of money. Uh, so uh, this is, and, and, and what we're saying is that it's still early days, probably like uh, carbon pricing was three years ago, just a handful of companies doing this. But uh, I think compared to carbon pricing, which is a still, for most companies, a nice to do, this is going to be a must need to do. And this, again, um, I think a, another striking conclusion of this particular story is that this is a very regionally focused um, trend, right? seems that uh, it's catching on more in certain regions than others. Taiwan uh, is, seems to be ahead of the game, um, compared to, and France, too, compared to the United States. So, again, kind of a, depending on where you are, I guess you're more attuned to it, more, more attuned to certain um, perhaps natural events that, that make you think about these sorts of things and, and very, very regionally focused. Well, a part of the regional focus, I think, and it doesn't say explicitly in, in James Murray's piece, but uh, stock exchanges, I know in South Africa and in other countries, are requiring climate disclosure, not yet here in the USA, uh, but I think some of that, that is coming from those requirements that to be a listed stock, 
not quite yet, but over time they're going to be requiring and a lot of companies, as is often the case, or early, the early adopters who want to get a jump on it and get some experience. So what we're seeing is uh, the first wave of, or the first, uh, the beachhead, I guess, of, of, of what will be a bigger wave of, of companies doing this, and presumably that too will become the norm. So this week in New York, I checked off one of the many things on my professional bucket list, and that was to pay a visit to Stephen Ritz at the Green Bronx Machine. Now, if you've been to one of our Verge or Greenbiz events in the past few years, you may have seen Stephen. He's this gangly, fast-talking, hyper-animated educator based at a school in the poorest congressional district in America. And what he's done with the kids there, using gardening and uh, cooking uh, and food in general, not just to teach them about food and nutrition, uh, but also math, science, and many other things. It's just amazing. And uh, I just have to say, he is has become not just a friend, but one of my heroes. Um, so I ventured up to CS uh, Community School, 55 in the Bronx, early morning, and uh, had Stephen Ritz show me around. And uh, I put together a montage of some of of what he told me and showed me uh, walking through this, you know, not quite as dilapidated as it used to be school uh, with just huge, huge promise. So, so here's Stephen Ritz. So this is the largest stretch of public housing in all of New York City and literally nothing but institutional housing for as far as you can see. Now, right here is the amazing Metro North, which in an ideal circumstance means you're six minutes to Manhattan, literally in the train, but doesn't stop here. 45,000 people who need a job. Did it used to stop here? It has never stopped here. The greatest conduit to moving people in and out of here, 18 blocks to a subway, could be this. And and the infrastructure exists for a a stop. Just a stop. Yeah. A simple stop. 45,000 people, eight square blocks. Nothing. Some of the unbelievable things. The windows have been shot out so many times that the wood that they have replaced it with (laughs) is now rotting. Is now rotting. Uh, you know, one of our big issues this summer, we lost 25 families in public housing due to a fire. The building is still sitting there. It's like the land no one remembers. No supermarkets. Um, I don't know which way you came in, but you may have seen our super huge McDonald's, our 24-hour McDonald's, one of the biggest McDonald's in all of New York City, strategically located right across from a junior high school. Uh, we have the highest grossing Domino's per square foot in America right up the block. But again, try getting people to this building. Try getting quality teachers here. And we have many of them, as you'll find out. But uh, this is, you know, what we have. Uh, Welcome. We have 785 kids getting three meals a day. And if they don't eat here, for better or for worse, many of them will not eat a wholesome meal elsewhere. But the building is 100 years old. And and you were telling me that just one of the basics they don't have are toothbrushes? Well, one of the big issues is toothbrushes, which I didn't know. A lot of kids share. You know, my goal is to get the book bags, backpacks, but sometimes you've got to meet children where they're at. So one year I got 100 toothbrushes. And I had kids come up and we started doing oral hygiene. And then children started coming back and asking me for another one. I said, I gave you one yesterday. And said, my mom wants one or my brother wants one because we share or grandma wants one. We have the highest percentage of kids living in shelters here, um, single parent homes and being raised by none other than parents. Also a tremendous amount of foster care. 
Statistics and probability all start right here. Percent germination, ratio, proportion. So in the old days, I used to do seed cups like this because they make beautiful patterns. But now I do. Instead of flashcards and time tables, two by two, four by four, eight by eight, all the way up to exponents. So these are the, the, little, the seed dishes. Right, the seed propagation. The kids actually keep data on this. The data that goes here informs all the instruction in classrooms. Ratio, fraction, proportion, statistics. You know, the children love seeing it. Measurement. Every kid so, has a rule. And how old are these kids that are learning you know, fractions and proportions? Well, a lot of my children, for many reasons, come to school delayed, academically delayed. Not because they are developmentally delayed, but academically delayed transition you know poverty um, homelessness a lot of the obstacles that many people don't realize so this is like the crash course so everything here is math generated it's also instruction so you know ordinal language purpose you know following directions if then conditional statements down to every single drop of water that goes into the tower gardens which they measure they record and we have data so the kids keep data they aggregate it they all have journals it translates into the whole school instruction and how old are these kids um well now we have kids so literally we have children in here from kindergarten and i have a small adaptive room on the other side because this is a little hyper stimulating but pre-k all the way up to fifth grade 12 sometimes we have some we do have some 12 year olds i mean i don't know that i learned a lot of that stuff when i was in those ages around fractions well, and now kids. you need to but the coolest thing is you can get on these bicycles, you get on the computer, you can Google map, you want to, where's your hotel? Yeah, 50th and 3rd. So you get on the computer, you put it on, and you can see how long it'll take you to ride around the world through Google Maps. So the kids love this. It drives the blenders, it drives the rocket machine. So these so, are, you got four stationary bicycles hooked up to generators. Right, with all different kinds of generators. They run the lights, they run, the, we have, we sell electricity. So we charge a battery, and the kids actually know how much energy. You can come in here and tell me what you had for breakfast. And usually when I find what you have for breakfast, the kids will have to show and put it on the screen and they find out how crappy it is. So then they have to get on the bicycle and see how long it takes to, to you know, work it off. This is one of the coolest things we've ever done. This is my Green Bronx Machine Mobile Classroom Kitchen. I'll explain to you what that is in a minute. I wanted to teach kids how to cook. It's great to have healthy, fresh food, but if you don't know what to do with it, you wind up throwing it out. So this is a state of the art. It's a commercial food truck on wheels. To put a kitchen in the Department of Ed, it's about $250,000. $250,000 to put a kitchen into the Department of Ed. You got to get licensing, all the equipment. This is a commercial food truck. It's USDA approved and National Food Safety approved. And literally, we have the other tables, but it snaps on. I carried this up the stairs. It, it snaps on to. The, the tops snap on. The whole pieces snap together and has a series of workplace stations. So I have 20 kids cooking here. We do TV shows, we do instructions, we have a sink. We, sell, we, we trap our water, we have an oven, we have a bain marie, so we do cooking, everything, a refrigerator. You can get on a cell phone, you can charge your blenders. So now the children know how to cook, they know what to do, they produce content, they broadcast content, we have our own internet, uh, we're writing cooking shows. And what did this cost and who paid for it? So this, believe it or not, $5,000 and you're done. And the coolest thing is now we have a new model that's even solar powered. So I can take this thing, if I had an elevator, I have another one that we take out and we cook in the projects and we go around. Um, it was from this great company called Port Equipment, again, one of the connections that I made through another connection, through another connection, through you. <laughs> and these guys design state-of-the-art military and hospital equipment. We grow enough food to send home 100 bags of groceries a week. And in addition, the food that we grow here, because we are part of the school garden to cafe program, it's important to give credit to them, um, we actually put that food downstairs in the cafeteria. And I have a whole series of food ambassadors. And my little food ambassadors, who, if they weren't in class today's Mosul Day, um, they will tell you about what it is, the benefit of eating this meal. Now, when little Johnny comes to the cafeteria, I am not anti-hot dog, although I might be. 
And I'm not anti-pizza, although I think there needs to be less of that. If someone who looks like you says, hey, Joel, try the John Boone taco. I made it upstairs. Or but when is taco Tuesdays or taco day? We do veggie tacos on Tuesday. Guess what? You try it, and guess what else you do? You like it. So in this school, food waste has gone way down. Trash costs have gone way down because kids are eating good food. And what are you growing? We grow 37 kinds of fruits and vegetables. We grow watermelons, cucumbers, tomatoes, a lot of lettuces, uh, bunch of herbs, so all the herbs that go on our pickles, we are home to the, per do we have our perfect pickle display here or did we put it away? Okay, so we, we pickle our own, make our own pickles, we make our own cucumber, I mean, we do all kinds of stuff. What's your ask of the corporate sector? My ask of the corporate sector is to fund Green Bronx Machine. We have a data-driven model that has moved attendance from 40% to 93%, generated 2,200 local jobs, and transformed the lens of public education, not by my standards, but by state standards in New York City in terms of test scores and the 10 crit critical indicators of school performance. So this school, literally three years ago, was undeveloped, and uh, underdeveloped or no evidence. And as you saw by the report card, we were well-developed and proficient in all 10 areas. This become, we, I like to say, Green Bronx Machines grows vegetables, and our vegetables grow students, schools, and opportunities. Here in the South Bronx, one of the hardest schools in New York City to staff for a variety of reasons, including location. We have an abundance of teachers who want to be here to come and be involved and be engaged and ch with children in a classroom like this. And the outcomes, I am growing you customers, I am growing you employees, I am growing you children that want to go work at Macquarie, that want to go work for Walmart, that understand that you know, their life's destiny is not to be a consumer but to be on the other side of the register. And thanks to the good people at Macquarie yesterday, we did $3,200. It was insane. $3,200. In sales from food that we grew here. A farmer's market. A farmer's market, apple pie, caramel apples. Um, but most importantly, you know what happened? My little guys met people who grew up in this neighborhood and never even knew that they could work in Manhattan. And that's the most important thing. So we'd love some corporate funding. We'd love to do some partnerships. We'd love to do some professional development and host you here. We've had people here from 60 countries and six continents. I'm trying to make the Guinness World Book of Records. So if anyone in our article is listening, please come so I can get in the Guinness Book of Records. But literally, people come here, spend the day with our children, fall in love, and make meaningful connections that change lives for everybody. I don't usually serve as a pitchman for nonprofits or anyone else for that matter, but if I had a million dollars, I would give it to Stephen and his Green Bronx machine. No questions asked. He is doing God's work, and I just I can't say enough good things about it. I just, you know, as he said, you know, they're just starting to get corporate support. Uh, they really could use it, and if he's doing some of the most inspiring work I've ever seen, and I've seen a lot of it. So, if you and your company foundations uh, have any inclination to check this out, uh, you, you should go up there. He'd love to show you around. Um, uh, send us a note at 350 at greenbiz.com and we'll hook you up. Hi, this is Associate Editor Anya Hallemeiser. Most of us already know about the UN Sustainable Development Goals. Um, which is a set of 17 guidelines for organizations and governments to build equitable and safe societies. These include really important uh, building blocks like gender equality, 
access to education, environmental protection. But what's less clear is how do we get there? So this is where the new Partnering for Green Growth and Global Goals 2030 Accelerator comes in, also known as P4G. This is a UN-led alliance between businesses and governments. That includes the governments of Chile, Denmark, Ethiopia, Mexico, Vietnam, um, and others, along with business and NGO leaders. And the alliance is meant to accelerate solutions, engage partners to find specific ways to address the SDGs within business. And it's supported by a fund of $4 million by the Danish government. I've spoken with Andrew Steer, president of WRI, World Resources Institute, to understand more about how this accelerator can lead towards sustainable development. What is the Global Green Growth and Global Gold Accelerator? Um, it, is a, it is a platform whereby um, potential public-private partnerships are identified, um, are incubated, um, and are financially supported and then monitored. It's a fund that is provided on a competitive basis to public-private partnerships. And then it's highlighted. So um, the idea is that this then sort of over time um, becomes well-known. It demonstrates that success is possible, could lead to replication and real scaling. What does this mean for, for the corporate sector? Well, if the corporate sector would like to move, uh, for example, to more sustainable patterns of uh, sourcing um, all throughout their supply chain, um, as many corporations do, um, 350 global corporations, for example, have now signed up to what are called science-based targets. That means that they are committed to lower their carbon footprint um, uh, in, in a way that science would suggest is required to address global warming. So it's very much in their interest throughout their entire supply chain to try and take carbon and greenhouse gas emissions out of it. So um, in order to do that, they often need help, uh, both from governments, but also they can be helped by um, coalitions of private sector corporations who are trying to do the same thing. There's a lot to learn from them. There's all kinds of, if you like, synergies and economies of scale if they do it together. So that would be an example, um, the possibility of taking deforestation out of one supply chain. That would be another example. Um, some fascinating issues relating to using water more uh, productively so that private companies don't take water that cities citizens need for example and so there'd be there'd be many many examples of um, actions that the private sector would like to take but they don't quite make sense on their own they make sense if they're done as part of a partnership with the public sector and sometimes also with other private sector companies and often also with civil society organizations like for example, the World Resources Institute. What are some examples of, of either companies or specific programs that you've seen? The Danish government, for example, um, three years ago, um, we came to the conclusion that the issue of food loss and waste 
was a very, very serious problem. You know, one third of all the food in the world never reaches the human mouth. Um, and as a result of that, you have malnutrition, but also you have massive greenhouse gas emissions. Food is responsible for more than 25% of all of the greenhouse gases. So if you could cut back food loss and waste by half, which is one of the global goals for 2030, you could actually um, have a massive gain in nutrition. Um, also, though, you could have a massive gain for um, for climate change, and you would save agricultural land the size of India, which would take a lot of pressure off the forests and off the biodiversity and so on. So then the question is, what should you do about it? Well, first thing we did is got a public-private partnership together um, to come up with a protocol on how to measure food loss and waste, which we did. Um, and that was something that private sector had, you know, it had Tesco's in it, it had Walmart in it, had a number of Unilever was in it and so on. Um, but it also had some UN agencies like uh, like UNEP, United Nations Environment Program, the Food and Agricultural Organization. It had some governments in it as well, a number of African governments and a number of rich country governments. So then we, uh, we decided, okay, can we reach agreement with the biggest consumer companies in the world to come up with a target? And then because we had that public-private partnership, Yes, the Consumer Goods Forum, they agreed on a target to halve food loss and waste by 2025. And then we said, well, how could they do that? Well, one of the ways they could do it is by changing the way you do food labeling. The moment, you know, if you go into a supermarket, you'll see all these confusing dates. And one of them says sell-by. Well, sell-by is a meaningless date because it just encourages people to throw away food. I mean, my... 15-year-old son, he looks at it, he says, sell by, and if we pass that date, he, he says he won't eat it. Well, and that's because it's a meaningless date. What you should have is a very simple date that says, don't eat this after this date. Um, and so just last month, as a result of this partnership, this public-private partnership, the Consumer Goods Forum, which accounts for the 400 largest food companies in the world, they agreed to do away or reform totally food, um, uh, the, the dates, food, the dates on food in supermarkets, for example. This is part of a, of a huge revolution that's going on. What's happening now is the corporate sector, at least the good guys in the corporate sector, which are at least a third of them, they are in the lead often. It is the major corporations and even the small corporations that are saying, we know that the future is a low-carbon one. We want to get ahead of the curve. And so we need maybe a little bit of help in that process, some public-private partnerships. We are driving the agenda. And this is very, very exciting stuff. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. Go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find more about the organization's stories and events we've mentioned in this episode. You'll also find some Stephen Ritz videos that you can check out. And while you're there, look for a link to our newest podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. Send us an email, 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. And thanks to GreenBiz 350 director, Stephanie Joyce, and our 
intrepid managing editor Elsa Wenzel. We'll be back next week for another episode of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.